Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't know yeah, don't find Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, just talk about death. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm murdery thingy thingy Okay. I'm excited. So <laughs> I'm so excited. Excited. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it. Um, what are we doing? We're doing a. Uh, Podcast. That's it. This isn't a an audio an audio book. Um, could you tell me how to get to the podcast store? Um, I've got to get a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> My name's uh, Mac and Charlie. That doesn't make any. Oh, I get it. I get it. That show was so stupid. Let's just settle down, everybody. Just a little disagreement between friends at the welfare store. No, I. Can't. Well, first or the podcast store, right? Um, but yeah, so this is mystery murdery thingy. This is mystery murdery thingy. I'm Chloe. I'm Mario. That's Mario. I'm Mario. That's I'm Chloe. I'm still Mario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In case you didn't realize, <laughs> <gasps> Mr. Krabs, Squidward, SpongeBob. <laughs> Somebody told me yesterday that I um, am kind of like a mix between Squidward and SpongeBob. <gasps> Is that, do you think that's true? Well, you're not cranky like Squidward, but you're definitely chill like Squidward. Yeah. But. And then I can be kind of goofy like Spongebob. If you're like goofy and also because you're kind of short. Yeah. And Spongebob is kinda. like a little dude. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like that. I don't know. Yeah. There's also this guy who was, <laughs> who was like making all these jokes about me being short. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was funny. Um. Because I got over that shit. Did you <laughs> get know? over yourself. I can't believe you were tall enough to get over it. Oh, <laughs> sick burn. <laughs> Fun fact, Mario's 5-0. Like the po-po. <laughs> what? 5-0 like the po-po. I don't know that song. Like, No, it's not a song. It's oh. like the 5-0. It's like what people call the police. The fuzz. The fuzz. Okay, moving on. The coppers. 
I like saying cops, but I guess you're not supposed to. Well, it's, it's, um, I mean, nobody really like thinks of it this way anymore, but technically it's like a pejorative because it's a derivative, a derivative of like, um, the like Russian word for like the police who would like take people and bring them to the gulags and like, you know, like be super bullshitty about it. Because police forces are not always out for your best interests, as we'll learn in my story today. Cough, cough, LAPD, cough, cough. They've gotten way better, actually. That's good to know. Yeah, not like right after the uh, Rodney King riots, but like after the next set of riots, which happened like about 10 years later. Yeah. Then they started to like really focus on like community policing and like making ties with That was in the 80s. Yeah. The Rodney King riots were in '94. Like Rodney King, that incident occurred in '94. And then but I when think when did OJ get killed? OJ didn't get killed. OJ's still alive. Or not OJ. When did uh? When did the murder trial happen? That was also in 1994. It was. It was the same year because I remember it was. A, it was a big Nicole Brown. Right, Nicole Brown big, and um, whoever the guy was. I forget his name. Never he, no one ever mentions him. I know. It's, he was a tennis instructor. It's sad. He was stooping OJ's soon-to-be ex-wife. Stooping. That's a nice way of saying fucking. Oh. <laughs> See, now you made me say it. I was trying to be nice. I was just repeating it for maximum effect. Um, I understand. Yeah. That's a good technique. I like it. Sorry, I have to blow my nose. Sorry, excuse me. That was like a... Are you going to keep that in? I don't know. You shouldn't. <laughs> okay. It was very comical, though. It sounded like we did a radio button. That's what you're... Which we should totally start doing. No. Right? <laughs> remember when Staples... Remember when Staples had the... Uh, the easy button? That was easy. Right. Should we get an easy button? No. Hey, let's make a podcast. Easy button. <laughs> it's done. That would be dope. Right. No, that would be no fun. Um, school would be a breeze. Right. Hey, I've got a paper. Easy button. That was easy. <laughs> Sorry, this is a stupid joke. <laughs> You're looking at me like, Sh- shut the fuck up. No. No. <laughs> but I do want to go first. Yes. And I'm only saying that because... I mean, I don't always have to go first. Like, you can totally go first. Mine... Mine is like a bummer, but I mean, uh-huh. all of ours are like. Usually. But this one is sad. Okay. On a. What would happen if you had to live your life this way type of level? Right. Does that make sense? Totally. But that's also a good way of thinking about it, right? Like, you know, uh, as we're talking about this, like, how try to have empathy for the people who are suffering through this disease, right, yes. or condition, or whatever it is you're... T- I know you said it's like a medical... Medical mystery. I've got a medical mystery. Medical mystery. Medical mystery. That'd be... We should... Uh, yes, we're going to be dispatching somebody out for that medical mystery right now. Okay, thank you. Yeah, insurance agent. Can we go over our uh, our prices, please? Yeah, for sure. That um, ambulance cost to the ER is $500,000. $500,000? <laughs> people have... There's been a report that people, like, 
taking Uber to the hospital. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, because I was just I was just talking Welcome about this. Welcome to America. I know, right? Land of the free to pay way too much for your health care. Um, but no, America. I was I was telling <laughs> I was talking about that with somebody yesterday that like. The fucked up thing about ambulances is like you don't get to choose who comes to get you. So like they might be a private company or they might be a city service. That's a like, thing. Yeah, they might be, and, and it always has been. It's always been patchwork. That feels like nothing but profit. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It doesn't seem like something that shouldn't be a, a government service, right? It's like, yeah, the government provides me with water and like ambulances, like right. Not necessarily. <laughs> like, sorry. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, medical mystery. The medical mystery of encephalitis lethargica, also known as the sleeping sickness. Oh, okay. So, it's not, it. it's most notable because it happened um, between a span of about nine to ten years. Um from 1915 to 1926, and that was when it was considered um, an epidemic. So this mysterious virus infected millions of people all over the world, Uh which is really interesting as well. Um, And basically what it did is it would transform you into a living statue. Hmm. You would be aware, conscious, but you're unable to move. Oh my God. And it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, So the exact number of people it killed is technically unknown, but it's estimated to be about um, a million people worldwide. Wow. And the reason that, I have this actually later, uh, the reason that we may have never heard of it, I certainly had never heard of it, is because it happened at the same time as the Spanish flu was going around, which killed like 50 million people. Right. And so nobody was talking about this one. Well, that's immediately what I was thinking, was like, oh, wait, yeah, well, that was the same time as the Spanish flu. Yeah. So, but I actually didn't realize that the Spanish flu killed that many people either. Oh, it killed a lot of I mean, I know it's like people. the deadliest outbreak of all time, as far as we know. Yeah. But, wow, like, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. But, I mean, a million people is also fucking crazy. Exactly. <laughs> crazy, right? Even just to hit that number, it's insane. So, we, I like this one because we've got all the questions here. What causes it? We don't know. Um, what can cure it? How does it spread? Is it possible for there to be another outbreak? And that's the mystery. And why did it stop, See? right? And why did it stop? Well, technically, I got a... There was some debate as to whether, where or not it, whether or not it has stopped. It definitely slowed down dramatically. Okay. And the last known case was in 2006. Okay. So, yeah, I think the World Health Organization or whatever considers a disease, like, eradicated if you have, like, no known cases in, like, five years or something. Something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the first doctor to study the disease in depth was a man named Constantine de Economo, who had, doesn't that sound like a, a magician? I am Constantine de Economo. Economo. You will, Economo. I know Economy. my own name. You will watch my tricks. They are not tricks. They are illusions. This guy's a good dude. So, he had numerous cases, uh, 
that he treated where he was he worked in vienna uh-huh. clinics filled with people dozing off explaining how they would fall asleep while eating food and they they displayed ticks and repeated words he published his findings aptly named okay when you're doing latin is it da or die or what? d wait what d-i-e encephalitis lethargica. D, or it's da you, D-A. you pronounce every letter in latin DA encephalitis lethargica. So, um, Economo christened this new disease, which means something along the lines of um, a brain illness that makes you sleepy. So, um, most people don't call it as that full name. It's mostly known as von Economo disease. Um, So, he discovered variations on how it manifests. And he put it into these categories. It's really interesting because it's called it's called the sleeping sickness, but it's kind of falsely named in that there's many ways that this can come about. Oh. So the hyperkinetic form is characterized by rapid motor movements, uncontrollable twitching, anxiousness, insomnia, and general restlessness. Amyostatic, akinetic form leading to symptoms remarkably similar to that of Parkinson's disease, dramatic reduction in muscle strength and difficulty moving, somnolent, ophthalmoplegic form. I think that's exactly how you say that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> ophthalmoplegic, by huh. far the most lethal and involved the patient suddenly fall asleep at running times even while walking. And in some this progress, this would progress into... Um, and indivi- if you didn't die uh-huh. and you had the som- somnolent up phthalum, whatever form, uh-huh. you would basically be frozen. Hmm. So, like, that was, like, the worst fate. Okay. A state of akinetic mutism, lacking the will to move or express themselves in any way for the rest of their lives. So it's not that their muscles didn't work. It's just that, like, it's they couldn't brain. send any signals yes. to the muscles. Yes. Or that probably, right? But it, yes. it's a brain condition. Yes. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's what I meant. Like, you are aware of everything, and you can see and hear and taste. Right. But, like... You're just, like, trapped you in your mind. move. Yeah. That sounds like hell. Like, the worst fucking hell that you can imagine. Yeah. Also, so it was, sorry, also found in their respiratory systems um, was, oh no, this is just written really badly. <laughs> Did you write it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they also found their respiratory systems paralyzed oh. um, and enlarged hypothalamus, which is part of the brain and the mm-hmm. back that controls sleep. Amongst other things. Um, so, like I said, yeah, the d- disease spread. Cities like London and New York started um, seeing cases. And the more it appeared, the more diverse the symptoms began to be. Hmm. Which was also difficult for diagnosing it. But they right. were also... Um, there were the most common symptoms. And then there was... If you have it, these like cluster of symptoms, it's probably right. this disease. The like lethargia and like falling asleep and stuff was always present. Yes. Okay. Some grew hyper instead of tired, um, 
and it seemed to be based on brain chemistries. Um, quote, a cruel puppeteer that could freeze one patient and cause another to sniff and drool until they wanted to die. Oh. Gruesome. So, approximately 40% of those affected died, 20% survived, but were invalids. 26% mostly recovered, but had long-term issues, and the remaining 14% made full full recoveries. Vaccinate your children. Moving on. (laughs) So do they have a vaccine against it? I I don't know. Oh, you were just saying in general. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) So, you know about this guy, I think. Who? The neurologist and author Oliver Sacks. Sacks. <laughs> Shout I'm out so, Oliver Sacks. I'm so glad that happened. Right. I mean, he's like the most famous like neurologist and like writer about like, you know, brain conditions and stuff that, you know, that there is. So, like he studied this and oh, he that wrote makes about sense. it. Yeah. He died um, not too long ago. Yeah. Of his own, I forget what he had. He had like some kind of brain condition or something maybe that's why he was so interested in it i think part of it was that he like had that one where you don't recognize faces i figure what it's called we'll we'll talk we'll talk about okay it. sorry go on um so he came across a small colony of these patients at beth abraham hospital in the bronx in the 1960s quote this is him quote once once a patient brought a dog to the hospital sex recalled in 1991 the poodle jumped up on a woman who was always frozen frozen and suddenly she belted out that she loved animals she started stroking the dog and laughed and laughing when the animal went away once again she was frozen so there's like stimuli yeah that can like take you out of it but you don't have control so is is this the same disease that, like, that movie Awakenings was about? Yes. Oh, okay. Correct. And Robin based Williams off was of his... playing Oliver Sacks. I haven't movie. seen it. Okay. But based on Oliver, huh. it's based on Oliver Sacks' book, The Awakening. Oh. I, like, did not even realize. Like, I knew about the movie, I knew about the disease, and I knew about Oliver Sacks, but I, like, had not put those... Didn't in. put them together. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he also wrote the book... The man who mistook his wife for a hat. And you told me right. that you read that. And um, there, there's also a one-act opera based yes. on it as well. Yeah. So, this refers to visual agnosia. A condition where an individual can see but cannot recognize or interpret visual information due to a disorder in the parietal lobes. Mm-hmm. So, um, the man who took his mistook his wife for a hat right right there's certain people who can't recognize faces and then also see faces where there aren't so they like think objects are people and they think people are objects yeah which is weird yeah. uh he also published a book and here we are called awakenings where he talks about his experience with l dopa and his el patients and l dopa was kind of the most effective drug in mm. that it made symptoms less severe. Out of the 20 patients that he writes about, three of them are still living. Um, but the book was written in 1982, so still living as of 1982. Okay, so and are, probably not. Yeah. yeah. And are vigorously, and in quote, vigorously and enjoyably alive. Um, so, however, as latest of 2004, a um, virologist named John Oxford 
um, published. It says et al, which I'm assuming means there's more people, more mm -hmm. Yeah, et alia, like all, all the other people. And all the other people <laughs> published some of his findings. So basically, the symptom that became the most important in, in finding the cause is the fact that a lot of a lot of patients reported sore throats. Huh. And that was one of the main symptoms that everybody had. They found it was a rare form of streptococcus, strep throat, that resulted in a strong immune system reaction, causing oh. the immune causing the immune system to attack parts of the brain. Now that makes more sense. That's their yeah. um Hypologist? <laughs> Hypothesis. Hypothesis. Thank you. <laughs> Hypotenuse? Yes. Virologist, <laughs> virologist, everything's in my head. So fortunately, the, the disease began to decline once they uh, started to find out the cause of it. And the estimated 5 million victims of EL became the, quote, lost generation. Wow. Um, like I said, some people got it and they died quickly. Others in the U.S. had short periods of lucidity due to the miracle drug L-DOPA, which, like I said, Oliver Sacks talks about. Right, but did, did not work as a permanent solution. No. Yeah. Some had responded to steroids to reduce inflammation. Um, others just had the worst fate, and they stayed that way till they died. Mm -hmm. um, institutionalized beyond communication. So... I'm going to talk about some real stories. Okay. This leads us to Philip Leather, the man who suffered with the disease for decades. He's the one who had it the longest. He was diagnosed in the 1930s when he was just a little kid. I think he was 10 or 11. Again, because there's no cure, he ended up staying in the hospital, frozen and locked in his own mind. He lived there for more than 70 years before dying in September of 2002. That made him the longest-serving patient at Hollymore Mental Hospital in Birmingham. And after he died, his sister decided to donate his brain to science. For science. Yeah. Yes. So fucking tragic. That's what I want to do. I want to donate my body to science. The whole thing. Use it all. You know, don't waste any parts. <laughs> you know, see what you can do with it. <laughs> I'm very short, so I don't know. Maybe you can look into that. Uh, who knows? But See you know. what we could find. Yeah. Hopefully it won't be for a while, so, you know. Yes. So, I found this website called Precip... Sorry. So, I'm sorry. I forgot yeah, that I'm not supposed no, to do that. That's okay. <laughs> it pisses you off. Well, I just feel like it's weird when you're listening to it and it's like... You don't like it? It's, it's not, like, a great sound. Now it sounds like you're... Making love. <laughs> okay. So I found this website called Precedent. I'm going to guess. And I think it's just like a ton of timelines that you can make yourself. Oh. And somebody made this, did like a really good in-depth um, research on this disease. And they made it into a timeline. Cool. So, and I started clicking on names. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start clicking on names. Ruth, February 1918. A 16-year-old girl is treated by Dr. Frederick Tinley. She was suddenly 
stuck by pain and became paralyzed in the arm. After bouts of violence, which was also common, she fell asleep from Christmas 1917 until February 1918. When she awoke, her body was still frozen. And then she died shortly after with a fever of 107. Whoa. Crazy. Yeah. Adam, 1922 to 1927. In the spring of 1922, Adam came home um, for Easter break with the flu, and that also turned into uncontrollable convulsing and yelling. He had um, episodes of incessant talking, drooling, and pain. And in 1924, he saw a psychoanalyst, uh, Smith Eli, J I'm going to say Jaliff. It could be Jaliffy. Because there's an E at the end, but I like Jolith. Maybe Jolith. Jolith, sure. Yes, we'll say Smith Eli Jolith. Um, the psychoanalyst analyst said he looked like a young man with Parkinson's disease. But with the help of psychotherapy, he was able to find triggers to prevent respiratory attacks and trances. And he was able to go five years without an episode. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that was early 19 that was 1924 and von economo died in october of 1931 he died of a heart attack um rosie and i found a a picture of her it's sad she's so cute she's a little kid um she was one girl who suffered a normal strain of the flu and was left with poor eyesight and a limp the next year she was diagnosed with park parkinsonism though her mother noted she was also constantly tired mm. Um, by the, 1928, she had grown a tremor in her arm and had a mask-like expression. She also became violent um, and lethargic. She had a tendency for self-harm, even admitting to tearing her own eyes out. Ooh. Yeah. She was, like, the worst case. Yeah. The most severe case, and she was a little kid. And they'd never seen a case, like, as crazy as hers ever. And what I think is that she might have had something else along with right. this disease. Right. Um, Sylvia was Comorbidity. a... Comorbidity. Yes. Sylvia was a 53-year-old woman when she first went to the Neurological Institute. This was in... from 1934 to 1945. Um... She used to work as an ambulance driver in France during the war, and the World War One also had a big, big impact on this because people were coming home sick, right. you know, living in trenches and shit, all kinds of disease everywhere. Of course. Um, ambulance driver during the war and had a case of the flu in 1918 and 1920. In six years, she visited the Institute 51 times, testing out numerous vaccines and other treatments, but there was no success. By 1940, she needed full-time care in her home. By 1942, she underwent a craniotomy that relieved her symptoms enough that she could walk again. But in 1945, she deteriorated quickly, became bedridden, and could not speak coherently, eventually dying. So she was one of the older women, and I feel like she was the one that was closest um, to the war. But like the most interesting to me is that she went to the institute 51 times and tested out all these vaccines mm -hmm. and then one time it fucking worked wow. she went um yeah she underwent a craniotomy which i didn't look up what that was a craniotomy you know? yeah that's where they'll strategically like take out parts of the skull to relieve pressure you know because a common 
well, not common, but right, like an immune response that can occur is that your brain swells, that there's like fluid that goes into the brain and it like swells, which, you know, can kill you. I mean, that, that itself can like be fatal. So, or like really damaging, right? So they have to, you know, drill holes or whatever in your skull and relieve pressure on the brain. So that's what they did in 1942 and he could walk again. Huh. So. Yeah, there's been like a ton of different like responses and attempts and like, yeah. That's what like really strikes me about this one is how varied it is. Anything else? I have like three more stories, but... I'm going to talk about the one in 2006, um, which was not diagnosed as, but has all the same symptoms. So a high school football player in Houston, Texas, experienced a sort of seizure at school and in the coming weeks began to feel tired. His body grew stiff and he had bursts of violence. After researching diseases, his doctor gave him a combination of steroids and L-DOPA and in a few weeks he recovered. Hmm. So it definitely seems like a... Yeah, that yeah. seems like the, the cure. So that's the one you were saying was like the last, like, probable... Yes. Yeah. Um, but we still have, like, these questions. Where did it come from and could there be another outbreak? Yeah, and how we, did it spread? Because it, it seems like, okay, a lot of people got it, but the doctors and nurses and stuff didn't get it, or it didn't spread, like as widely as you might think if it were like just a streptococcus yeah. virus. So, very mysterious. Mysterious. Bodies are weird. Yes, bodies are strange. Don't think about that too much. Uh, when I think about bodies too much, I get <clears throat> and then I start to want to faint because I'm very squeamish. But, oh, um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, that sucks. Well, it's, <laughs> it's whatever it is, right? But um, I don't know. Like to me, uh, uh, it's it is seeing it. Like uh, you know how like some people like watching like surgery videos or like whatever. Can I? I cannot do that. I can't do that either. Oh my god. Yeah, we we both like accidentally saw something when I was researching this that like we did not want to see. So we did. Yeah, I'll I'll mention it when we get to that point, but um. But yeah, I'm, I'm like, can't deal with that crap. Um, my sources, just real quick, were Van Winkle's article by Jake Ross entitled The Horrible Unexplained Mystery of Encephalitis Lethargica, which I recommend. It's a good one. An article on freelibrary.com called The Lost Boy with the, with the Gift of the World. Carl Smallwood's article at ifoundout.com, The Mysterious Encephalitis Lethargica. Encephalitis Lethargica. And, of course, the precedent timeline on... So how, does that, how is that spelled, that website? Precedent? P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N. Okay, cool, cool. I, yeah, it could be precedent or... Oh, yeah, precedent, like proceeding through a list of events. Or maybe precedent, like precedence, like a That's list what of I was thinking. Yeah. Anywho. Anyway. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, wait, before we get to that, just keep your excitement at bay for just a moment longer. So, um, we have a big correction from last time. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> we went, like, on. So, okay, 
Reminder, it was unedited, uncut, and raw. So <laughs> And raw. And raw. So, uh, Mary Shelley, I looked it up afterwards. <laughs> Remind us. Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, whom we mentioned as being possibly um, inspired or whatever by the stitched together uh, corpse of the first Thames torso victim. Yes. As you'll recall, the police did that stitch job, so to speak. Um, Mary Shelley died in, I believe it was 1856. Uh, that happened in like 1873. So clearly <laughs> she didn't know because she had been dead for like over 15 years. Um, I also just like randomly said New York for some reason. Like, oh, maybe she was reading about it in the papers of New York. And neither of us realized that I like, said talking that. Talking about but London. I was talking about London because it didn't happen in the United States. Um, I think there was like one or two other things from last time, but hey, you'll have to forgive us, okay? That was the big one. Okay, so now I'm going to get to my story for today. And this is one I've been interested in for a really long time. Um, and we've talked about a lot, like in the past as well. And it's the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. So, Benazir Bhutto... <sighs> she... I remember when you first told me about her, I was immediately inspired and like... Exactly. She's a, was a beautiful woman. I mean, she, she was an inspiration for Malala Yousafzai, who also from mm -hmm. Pakistan. Um, inspiration for many, many women and men and people of all, you know, stripes all over the world. Um, and, you know, just a, a little bit, if you don't know who she is, she was uh, the once, and it seemed future, in 2007, Prime Minister of Pakistan. First woman to ever lead a Muslim-majority uh, country. And in uh, December of 2007, uh, Benazir Bhutto had just returned to her country after a period of self-induced exile, mm -hmm. uh, of which she had a few in her life. And this was December 27th, 2007. It was in Rawalpindi, Pakistan. So one of the larger cities in Pakistan. And Benazir Bhutto had just finished giving a big political rally, right? Uh, the uh, elections were upcoming in January 2008. She had just come back into the country. Everyone was fucking excited. Like, yeah, the Bhutto clan big political dynastic clan going back centuries in Pakistan wow. is back. Like, she's the next one. She's going to lead us into democracy. You know, the, the, the people, right? She ran the Pakistan People's Party. The people are going to take back their power, right? And Benazir Bhutto's the one who's going to do it. Yeah. And they were fucking excited. Yeah. And it was this huge political rally. Thousands of her supporters. And according to some awesome. of the... Yeah, according to some of those people, it was the best speech she had ever given in her political career. Uh, she was like 54 when she died, but she had been uh, campaigning and prime ministering since she was 26. So she had already had a huge, you know, long career. So as she was leaving the rally, right, waving to her supporters through the sunroof of her vehicle, a young man in sunglasses pulled out a gun fired three shots toward her vehicle. Benazir Bhutto then lowered her head, or sorry, the, the, um, the shooter then lowered his head and detonated his suicide vest <gasps> and blew himself up. What the fuck? Right next to her vehicle. Yeah. Mass chaos. 
the suicide vest was filled with uh, with um, shrapnel. Oh God! With with um, like um, buckshot, basically. So you know, people are dead. People are bleeding. Uh, there's just mass chaos, right? And as people described it in the vehicle, uh, Benazir Bhutto fell back into the car right at, after the blast with a massive head wound, just gushing blood. Ah! Um, the woman who was, was there in the, the vehicle with her, uh, you know, that she kind of fell onto, said that she was covered in blood, that Bhutto was covered in blood, that it was just a, a horrible just the the worst you know kind of scene that, that you can possibly imagine it was never clear this is like the the, the, the mysteries and the, there's so many mysteries in this one right it was never clear if she was actually shot or not that's actually a big point of contention uh, between different sides and like trying to define what exactly happened at that moment but according to the official account and what is also supported by the UN report that was done was that she actually hit her head on the lip or the latch of the sunroof as a result of the bomb blast. So that when the blast happened, she was kind of like thrown mm. and hit her head and then fell back into the fell back into the car. In either case, she appeared to be immediately unconscious. She was barely alive. Um, barely breathing, hanging on to life. And the vehicle's tires had been shot out and um, the driver sped away just on the bare wheels because the backup vehicle, the vehicle that was supposed to be there just in case something happened, had already left. Oh, shit. And no one really knows why that happened either. But Oh, um, is it not supposed to leave? It was not it not at all supposed to leave. It was huh. supposed to be there in case something happened, which it did because this ha she knew that was this was going to happen. This was by no means the first attempt on Benazir Bhutto's life. So like the planning and and the security are surrounding this that's what killed her. So like we'll we'll get back to that at several points, but like the the suicide bomber obviously killed her, but the circumstances, what was allowed to happen around her security is you know returning back to Pakistan, you know that was like a big contributory cause in all of this, and and part of that at the scene was that that backup vehicle was not there, and like the guy who was in charge of her security who was in that vehicle, what he says is. I wasn't driving. It wasn't my decision to leave. You know, there were five people in that car. And that's, again, um, something that keeps coming up. is like people like saying, like, well, that wasn't my decision. Like, well, you know, I, I didn't create this circumstance. But it's like everyone just keeps pushing it off onto someone else. And it's all very strange. And you start to wonder, like, really? Like, that's the excuse you're going with? Because it seems like maybe there's something else going on here. But... That's the mystery, right? Yeah. Okay. That's freaky. That reminds me of Jam Master Jay's murder. Oh, really? There were four other people in that room, and no one knows who killed him. Of course. Oh, I didn't see anything. So, as I said before, the ball-bearing shrapnel that was in the suicide vest, you know, exploded out when the suicide bomber, you know, um, 
uh, hit the trigger, and uh, 24 people were killed at the scene. <gasps> Many, many more, uh, over a hundred, you know, I can't remember, but in the hundreds of people uh, were wounded, some very severely. So the, the hospitals in this area were just immediately flooded with, with victims. There was also a shooting, just as a side note, at a different political rally for uh, Benazir Bhutto's main uh, rival um, in a different city in Pakistan. There was like a shooting at that political rally. So again, like this is not uncommon in terms of like um, violence around Pakistani politics, especially like at, at this particular time, but also before and afterwards. So um, she, Benazir Bhutto, was taken to the Rawalpindi General Hospital, about two miles away from the scene. And there she was treated by Rawalpindi Medical College principal, Mohammed Musadiq Khan, who's, um, and he and other doctors and the staff attempted to resuscitate Bhutto. I can't remember, but I think it was for like something like uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, and eventually Khan, and this is what I was talking about earlier, performed what's called a left anterolateral thoracotomy. And that's where you open up the chest yeah. and do open cardiac massage. So ah, li literally, what? Um, what? you know, taking the heart in your hand and you know pumping it, literally physically pumping it. And that's that apparently, a thing? apparently, that's the last resort. You like last if resort. nothing else, if CPR doesn't work, you know, whatever, giving them, you know, uh, IV, whatever. That's what you do to like you just try to get the heart started and it didn't work. So, you know, she was not able to be revived and was um, declared dead at, at the oh hospital. Um, I can't believe she even made it to the hospital. I know, I know, because she was like bleeding so badly. And then some people say that she was also, yeah, um, that she was also uh, shot, but and and again, that's it's never been clear. Like a couple of the doctors gave an initial finding or initial reporting that she was shot, and and that there was like a um, a gunshot wound to her chest and her head. But afterwards, they said that that was not the case. That was the medical examiner that said that. Well, the met and we'll get into that too. The medical examiner was not involved. There was no autopsy done. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, though. But okay. It, yeah. But in, in terms of the gunshot wounds, they, they recanted. They said later, okay, that was not the case. And in the uh, report, so I, one of my sources was an uh, audio book. It was about six hours long of the guy who led the UN um, f finding into the in, uh, investigation, rather, into the, into the assassination. And he says that he could not find any credible evidence that she was shot. So hmm. it, it's just really, like, not clear. Another, well, one of many weird coincidences in this, uh, some of which we'll get to next episode, because it's going to be a two-parter, um, is that Mohammed, yeah, Mohammed Musadiq Khan's father had attempted to resuscitate the first prime minister of Pakistan, Liaquat Ali Khan, when he was assassinated in the same park in 1951. Wow. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy. Deja vu. I know. Like, yeah. Im imagine being those Pakistani people living in Rawalpindi. Like, what the fuck? Like, 
what is it about prime ministers coming to Raul Pindi? And like, why can't we have like a nice rally, right? Without people goddamn blowing themselves up. Uh, I don't understand people. Anyway, uh, no official autopsy was ever done, as we said. Not entirely clear why. Again, that passing the buck. We're going to keep seeing that. Passing the buck. So according to Pakistani uh, law at the time, it, it, it was illegal. You had to get the investigating authorities' request, official request, to do an autopsy. So the, uh, the investigating authorities would determine, okay, there's probable cause that there was foul play involved. They would request an autopsy, autopsy to be done by the medical examiner. But they never did. They never sent that request. And when they were asked about this, they said, well, uh, why didn't the hospital just do it? Even though they know very well that that would have been illegal and that they could not have done it and that the hospital requested that they requested and asked them about it, but that they wouldn't do it. So I don't know. So they just like brought it back to the hospital and was like, well, what about them? Exactly. Even though... Yeah, it was total like just... Um, you know, shifting, but, you know, and, and again, we'll get into the whodunit next time, but, you know, just keep in mind that a lot of the mystery of this one comes from the perhaps ineptitude or perhaps nefariousness of the investigating authorities and the official sort of Pakistani government officials who... Whatever, right? Um, there, see, there seems to have been maybe something else going on other than just incompetence, mm. let's say for now. So what they also said, what the, what the authorities also said was that um, Benazir Bhutto's husband, Asif Ali Zardari, refused to consent to, um, to the autopsy, right? Mm-hmm. Because that, that was like kind of part of it too, right? That the next of kin had to consent. But they only asked him about it when the body had already been transported to the airport in a casket to be flown back to the ancestral Bhutto home. So, of course, you're going to... So, what, what they're basic, basically what they were asking was, oh, oh, did you, did you want us to do the autopsy three hours ago when your wife was, wife's body was still at the hospital? Or, oh, do you want us to take it back to that? Like, what was he supposed to say? Like, what was he supposed to do, you know? And and my understanding is that um, uh, in the Muslim faith, you're supposed to be buried within a day, right? I think so. Right? So, you know, it's like the... How would the timeline of that work have worked even? So, it, it just does not add up it, as to why the autopsy was done. It There's there's some other reason here that we're just, like, not totally getting. Um, but it's, it's not any of those reasons. <laughs> like, that doesn't make sense. And again, this is one of the many uh, examples of investigators bumbling, perhaps intentionally, um, the investigation into this assassination. So, we're left with two big questions. Who did this, and why did they do it? Right? So we'll address that second question first, this episode, and then we'll dig into the whodunit of it in the next episode. Yes. So be looking forward to that. Okay, so a little bit more about Benazir, um, about Miss Bhutto. She was not only the first woman, but also the youngest person to lead a Muslim-majority country. 
Like I said, she was 26. What? She was, you know, basically just out or about to finish. I can't remember grad school. No, she had just finished um, at Oxford, you know, doing um, work. She wanted initially to become a diplomat. Like, if things had gone the way that she would have liked, Uh she would have gone back to Pakistan and joined the Foreign Service and become, like, a high-level diplomat um, for for Pakistan. But that was not to be, as we'll see. But she was the latest of that powerful, dynastic political clan, the Bhutos. And that's kind of how Pakistan works. They have a number of, like, leading families that have been leading in that area sometimes for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Dynasty. Di- true dynasties. They used to be, you know, the, the whatever, Mughal emperor of this area. And then, you know, when the Mughal empire fell, they were still like the leading family of that, you know, place. Or what have you. You know, all Pakistan's a very diverse country in, in a lot of ways. Um, Additionally, Bhutto was also the main voice advocating for democracy in Pakistan, in opposition to the military rule, Pervez Musharraf, at that particular time. But since its inception in like the late 1940s, when it was partitioned from India, I think in 1948, uh, Pakistan has been ruled about half the time by military rulers and about half the time by sort of more or less legitimately elected prime ministers. How could they split something like that half and half? It's not that they chose or they intended to do it. It's just that's how it's worked out. About half the time, it's it's been under military rule because they've had a coup. You know, that's how it usually happens. Um, the prime minister's position in Pakistan is meant to be five years long. The only time that they've ever gotten to a full five-year term ended in 2016, I think, since 1948. Wow. So it's just been constant. Like, uh, there, there will be a, an elected ruler, and then that elected ruler will be overthrown by the military, or they'll be assassinated, you know, or they'll be forced to leave the country because of what might be, you know, trumped-up charges, and then they're made to leave, which actually happened to Pervez Musharraf. He's... Um, in out of the country right now because you know he may have been involved in this that's a whole other thing sorry sorry i'm getting off on a tangent so while Bhutto was that strong advocate for peaceful resistance like against the military rulers she was also very much a pragmatist she was willing to what a pragmatist like she was willing to do what she needed to do right which would in this instance include working with the military rulers Um, even though she knew, you know, democracy is like the ideal, right? She was willing to do that for the good of the country, right? As she saw it. Although there were definitely people like, you know, one of her brothers who like violently disagreed with her. That like there, there shouldn't be any, you know, what they would say would be collaboration with the military rulers. That's not really how Benazir saw it. She, she knew that this is kind of what you have to do to get power, and to make, like, real change for the people, right? And she thought a lot about this, right? About the fate of her country since she was a little girl because her father was also prime minister. So she... So that yeah, was her life. She was... Exactly. She was groomed for this. This was her whole life was, you know, dealing with and thinking about the fate of her country. And she was just 26, 
when her father, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, was executed by the state for a probably trumped up, you know, it seems like not really legitimate murder charge by the military government at the time, by the Haq government, um, which had overthrown uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's prime ministership. So basically he was taken out in a coup and then he was put in jail because of what they said was his involvement in, in a certain uh, murder. And it's, it's like really sad, right? Like I listened to some other, um, like a, a witness documentary from BBC about this and you know, they go, she tells the whole story, you know, can I heard like her telling it to the BBC at the time. About the story of about, the coup? Um, and... Well, about the last night that she saw her father alive. Oh. So they didn't tell them when he was going to be executed, but he knew, like he had, so when they visited him in jail, he kind of told them, you know, like, this is going to be the last time we're going to see each other. Um, you know, you, you've got to keep it going. You know, she, he tried to like mo motivate her and like comfort her in that last, you know, moments that they had together. But the, the jailers wouldn't even let him out of the cell for a minute to give her a hug. Like, so messed up. Really, really sad. And then she and her mom just, like, sat up all night and just, like, waited to hear on the radio that he was dead. So this was, like, I mean, obviously, right, a seminal moment in her life. You know, um, like I said before, she was planning on being a diplomat. But when the military ruler at that time, you know, basically killed her father because of this, you know, what might have been a trumped-up charge. Do you think she got a little... I think so, yeah. She was on a mission from that yeah. point. Like, she was yeah. there, and she Talk was... Talk about motivation. Exactly, right? I mean, I am Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You know, I'm uh -huh. sort of joking, but, like, hey, he spent 20 years practicing his swordsman. I mean, think about that, if that were a real story, right? Yes, yes, yes. You know, so she was forced to take up the mantle of her father's party, the PPP, the Pakistan People's Party. And using her Harvard and Oxford education, she had really good education from the West, like a lot of these leading family members in Pakistan, and her extensive ties that she had made in the West, you know, to government figures and people over there, uh, from her perspective, Bhutto became prime minister twice, although she was forced to leave it both times. And she was also a leading global voice for women and for democracy. Um, she was fucking I don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to say this like her her courage was unbelievable like her ability to do what she felt she needed to do and what was right in the face of what she knew were people who were going to kill her she knew she was going to be murdered and people told her this, and she told them, I know, and I have to do it anyway. And I'm not going to put my head behind bulletproof glass every day. And I'm not going to stay inside that armored vehicle because Preach. I have to be out there because the people need a symbol and they need someone to fight for them. And, and she, and this is how she became prime minister, right? She had that energy. She, from the moment that she was born she had it um she was the the first uh woman and the first um asian woman 
to lead the um, uh, prestigious debating society at Oxford. Yes, like, yes, yes. Like, people followed her. Like, they had to listen to her. And part of it was that just indomitable courage. Um, and, you know, this is in, like, the great tradition of people like, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., That's John Lewis, Muhammad Ali. Yep. Like, think of those people and the way that, you know, they were not you know, unaware of the danger, but they were willing to face it. I was definitely thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, definitely. And and again, he knew he was going to die. The last speech he ever gave, he talked about it. And then he was killed. Yeah. You know, R RFK. That's what happened thing. to her. And that's what happened to her, exactly. So, you know, to her, this was a personal calling, and it was a fulfillment of her father's exhortation, not only before he died, but also before she went off to college in the West. So when she was about to leave to go to Radcliffe College at Harvard University, her father told her that the education that she was gonna get, the privilege that she had, was only possible because of the sweat and the blood of the poor people of Pakistan, the workers and the farmers. And so she has to come back and improve her country. Do you think she succeeded? Yeah, that's a really good question. Right? It, a lot of people would say no. And it's hard to even measure something like that. Yeah. It's subjective. Yeah. And, and, you know, she wasn't perfect. You know, don't... Yes, she was a great and courageous figure, someone whom we should admire. But she had her faults, right? No political figure is no, perfect. No, because she was a real person. So she was, and then this is part of why maybe she didn't accomplish or, or change things as much as she would have wanted or people certainly had expected because the expectations were like to the fucking moon, Yeah. right? She was criticized as being an, an ineffective manager. With a lot of pressure. Um, you know, sort of a political knife, uh, a naive kind of political actor. Um, she was also reportedly bad at taking criticism and couldn't really hear bad news. So that, that limited her as a leader and has like a, an effective, um, you know, governor or, or administrator, right? But um, she was also embroiled in a few financial scandals, which oh. also did not really help the whole situation. A lot of those in, seem to have involved her husband, Zardari. Uh, people called him Mr. 10%. Because meaning, meaning that um, they were basically accusing him of graft, of taking ten percent off the top, right? Oh. Of taking kickbacks. Oh. So you know there would be a government contract that would have to be given out. Okay, we'll give you the contract as long as you know I get ten percent, allegedly, right? What she says, she never really totally denied that he may have done some of those kind of things. She says. Um, there was a particular interview where she said something like he had a different conception of like, um, I don't know, like, like, like an old conception of rule and, and like how would things were supposed to be, Yeah. you know, because, okay, if you were an emperor or something, right, then, okay, he just looked that at would make sense, but differently. Yeah. He sort of thought of things in that, in that old way. Uh, which was not the way that, like, Buto wanted things which to be. Which is interesting, because she's so progressive. Exactly. But, again, pe you know, people are multifaceted, right? Um, so, one of those charges of financial impropriety was serious enough 
for the Swiss government to bring a court case against her because it in involved per, uh, allegedly Swiss banks. And another, and, and she was fighting that case like up until she died. That, that was never actually resolved. And another case involved, um, they were apparently, Zardarian Bhutto apparently buying a lavish home in England, I think it was in Sussex, through a number of shell companies and like intermediaries, apparently to hide the fact that they were buying this because they couldn't afford it, right? Because it's like this huge mansion, palatial mansion, but on paper, they're not making enough money. So this, this is the kind of things that happen, right? When you see graft and government corruption. So it was never, you know, none of this was like totally pinned down, but there's a lot of smoke around this whole thing. Yeah. I feel like with this entire government in general, Yes, uh, totally. Like the the Pakistani government, it, it's like had this great. It's sort of like the American government. Like it had this great ideal from the beginning. Like the, yeah, the yeah. visionary, you know, that uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, like the founder of the country, like their George Washington, like wanted it to be. It never lived up to that, but it's always been striving to live up to it. So I think Pakistan and the United States, like we're very similar in that way. Um, in a way that probably a lot of people don't think about. So there were no, you know, shortage of factors and grievances that people had um, as to why they wanted Benazir Bhutto dead, right? Let's kind of wrap up and kind of try to, like, answer that question a little bit to some extent. So there was the apparent greed and graft, as we were just talking about. There were the ties to the West and the very much hated by a lot of people in Pakistan, United Nations, America, and Britain. Wow. Like, um, I can't remember, something like 70 plus percent of Pakistani people in the latest um, Pew Research poll um, named America as an enemy. So, like, and That's it's, so comforting. I know, right? Technically, we're allies, but, like, it's very, always been a very, like, rocky relationship. Especially in the, like, tribal areas and the people yeah. who, you know, whatever. Um, so, also, of course, for unorthodox, unorthodoxy. <laughs> unorthodoxy. Unorthodox. Unorthodoxy. Um, as a woman leader. You know, that's just that's not... That's what I was thinking it was. Right. Because she was... I mean, not automatically, um, but she was looked at more so mm -hmm. as being progressive. Right, and and almost not, almost whatever she would have done, she would have been seen that way because she was a woman, and that's a progressive position in in this um, society, you know, at that time. Um, but also her willingness to open up relations, uh, relations rather, with India. So that's really unpopular amongst a certain you know, group of, uh, of Pakistanis. And, like, in Pakistan, like, the one thing, if you don't understand anything else about Pakistani politics, is the conflict with India. Always is in the background or the foreground. But it's always there. Like, there's no issue, uh, whether it's domestic or foreign, that does not in some way for them involve the, the, the relationship with India. So, like, that's just, like, a huge thing in general. So, you know, again, um... A lot of people had reasons to want her killed from their perspective, right? People in the military, people in the secret services, which are very powerful in Pakistan, uh, tribal leaders, um, 
religious fanatical terrorists, right? Like uh, Al-Qaeda. Those were the type of people that I was thinking of as wanting to kill her. And we'll get and into... And I had no idea that, like, mm -hmm. all of these... I mean, I guess it makes sense once you, like, read it out loud, like, all these groups of people mm -hmm. who would be against her. Very much so, but she had many, many enemies, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and we'll get into all of that. Like in detail next time. Who done it? Like the who done it? We'll we'll dig into all of these different people and factors and like, yes, very much so. But there, and this is what we'll see, right? There's no single why or who, but we're talking about why. So there's no single why. There's a collection of power dynamics that all stack up with Budo on one side, uh, in her kind of progressive place, and an array of, you know, deadly factors on the other. The military, the secret services, the terrorists, like, you know, that's really what it's about. Like, this was a natural sort of power situation that was always going to happen. And I think that's really the bigger why. It was just, like, bound to happen because of who she was, right? Um, that catalyst for change and a reorientation to the West. And therefore, she was a threat to the powerful and ultimately very homicidal actors, you know, in Pakistan. So that's my best summation. So next time we'll dive into the investigation, we'll look at that, you know, who done it. Um, then at the very end, we'll do a little roundup of all the weird coincidences that surround this. Because like that thing with like the dad and son doctor and like the first prime minister in Bhutto, by no means the only weird coincidence in this story. So I think that's just kind of another little interesting part of it. That's my story, so. Do you have weird shit in the news? Uh, not really, sorry. I, I just have one, <laughs> and it's basically that this was like a couple of headlines, and I didn't read too much into it because it seemed kind of fucking stupid, but a financial manager <laughs> stole $500,000, and uh -huh. then he spent it all on pedigree kittens. <laughs> <laughs> My man, <laughs> I gotta get those pedigree kittens. <laughs> like, what is the thought process there? <laughs> uh, I feel like there's a lot of a lot of um, lying to yourself. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cognitive uh, dissonance. A lot of cognitive dissonance, exactly. It's my favorite term for. Um, yes. 2016 to right. current. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love to that now. Term. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wish we could have Oliver Sacks here to, to tell us all about it, you know, from the other side. I think he died in the 80s. He, no, he died in like 2015 or something. No, I, I remember oh, hearing about No, this. you're right, you're right. He was it 2015? Die. Yeah. Oh, it was actually 2015? I think so. Oh, okay, cool. I was just kind of guessing. But, uh, oh, um, we need to do another weird news extra, and this is where I'll like actually talk about it. Like, we will, we're gonna do it, okay. Okay. Um, but, uh, <laughs> get off our backs, okay? Um, people who aren't actually talking to me right now. Um, but, um, okay, so there's just been more of these, like, not sonic attacks. They, yeah, and. Dude, this is weird. But not only the, the new, the one from China, not only the new one from Cuba, apparently there might be another one. In, in Chicago? Future, not in Chicago. I can't remember where, but I'll talk about it in specificity in the Weird News Extra. But dude, that's my weird news, but just a teaser weird news, because 
that might you gotta, be... You gotta subscribe to hear the whole thing. You, you gotta gotta go to patreon.com slash thingy and thank you for listening. And I'm gonna talk about the body that was found yesterday. Yes. Find out all about it. Where, who, why. Right. There was a body found out. Found, found find out. out. Found out. The body's been found out. Was it in your house? Find out at 11. <laughs> <laughs> a common product might kill you. Which one? Find out at 11. Okay, love you, Fox. Right. <laughs> Infotainment. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening, y'all. We love tell it when you listen. Tell all your friends. Tell your, tell your friends. Tell your friends to tell their friends. And then um, if you can find a live news broadcast, go on back of the broadcaster and yell out, Mystery murdery thingy. If you are Just whatever. famous... Mm. Just say our name on Twitter, and yes. that's it. You don't have to do anything else. Yeah, and because it'll be <laughs> mysterious. Yeah. People will be like, what is that? That and sounds like a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know how all the money we have, we used it to like sponsor ourselves on the top of the Google page. Oh yeah, with totally. our pictures and profiles and right. everything. Okay. Yeah, we have uh, no monies. Have you seen our ads everywhere? <laughs> right. Yeah, we do you uh, play Candy Crush. <laughs> we do targeted ads, actually. No. <laughs> Dude, I if I do a series of googling, Google knows what's mm-hmm. next. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I googled Oliver Sex. Right. And then I put in the the man who took mistook his wife for a hat, and then I pressed V, and it went visual agnosia, and I was like. It knows. It knows. It knows. Too much. <laughs> Predictive text. It's weird. Um, what else? So, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the part of the podcast where we make weird sounds. <laughs> you didn't see anything weird in the news? That That's what I call? said. Oh, um... I don't know. <laughs> I've been busy. I got a new job, so that's why we're like recording it at nine forty-two on the Wednesday morning, and not like before this. But three, three, we're doing it. Sometimes I have priorities. Like Hashtag sleep. priorities. It's like sleeping. Um, sleep is a good thing. Oh, oh. speaking of, because you're doing a part two on a similar on the same thing. I'm gonna do something similar, and I'm gonna talk about. The Calakai sleeping sickness, even though they found out what's happening. They're like, so it's not a mystery. Sure. But it's like, interesting. Are there know. other sleeping sicknesses? You I'll, I'll look into a medic, another medical mystery. I'll do that. Or uh, we have a medical mystery. I'll find. <laughs> I'll finally, or I'll finally read about all those weird, those weird deaths. I just have a list of people and how they died from Wikipedia. There's some weird shit, y'all. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. I don't know if you knew about that. Enough to make a podcast Enough about. Enough to make a podcast about. And okay. keep it going for at least 26 weeks. What's that? So, okay, so I'll do this one actually because I did read this. So, there was a new, I think it's species and genera, I can't remember, of um, ape which was found, um, or they, they know about it because there were bones from it found in a tomb in China, like this ancient China, oh, it was actually the grandmother of China's first emperor, her tomb. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. Um, wow, that's yeah. really old. Yeah, pretty, pretty damn ancient. 
And apparently she was buried, you know, with a lot of gold and riches, you know, befitting the grandmother of the first emperor of China, but also with some of the pieces of her menagerie. Um, because, you know, I mean, people have had menageries forever, right? But of course, you know, ancient China, you're going to have a fucking menagerie, right? I mean, you're the Middle Kingdom. People bring weird animals to you. That's your whole thing. That's the thing. That's the thing. You come here. We're the Middle Kingdom. You don't. You come to us. We don't go to you. What is uh, that? It looks like a goat. Uh, take it to China. Right? <laughs> oh, it's a push-me-pull-you. A what? A push-me-pull-you. <laughs> you weren't doing a bit. You were just saying what? <laughs> From Dr. Doolittle. Not the Eddie Murphy version. Mario, I haven't seen the Dr. Doolittle... Eddie Murphy version since I was a little kid. Not I, the Eddie Murphy. And, and I haven't even seen, I didn't even know <laughs> Rick Harrison, there was I think. A, a, a different one. Well, it's delightful and uh, they um, sail in a, a huge pink sea snail and it's uh, delightful. Did I mention it's delightful? This is going on way too long. <laughs> so, um, it was a weird ape and they found out that it was like this uh, species that they had never heard of that is like um, a type of gibbon, and it's got, like, really big, uh, like, uh, front, um, fangs kind of thing. So it was like this. It was like, <laughs> that's an actual recording. So can I post that on our Instagram, or... Yeah. Okay, that's my weird shit. And we're done. Go team! Yay! Bye. Team mystery! Uh, buddy. Team mystery! We are the team mystery. <laughs> okay, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.